Take what away? What do you mean take it away? Take what away? Huh? Take away the bullshit. Um, please, someone. Well, that's not going to happen. The bullshit is here for good, and it's only going to increase in quantity and quality. Quality. No. No. <laughs> well, decrease in quality, increase in quantity, and increase in perfume. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, today, I want to go. Do you remember after 9 11? Do you remember what Donald, or Donald, Donald Rumsfeld yeah. said? What did he say? What did he write in his memo? He was a genius. Um, he wrote. Um, Immediately on the day of 9 11. Oh. The memo. Um, this would be a good day to bury some bad news. Was that him? No. Go massive. Go massive. Go massive. Sweep it all up. Things related and not. And had written Saddam. WMDs in there and stuff. Um, go massive. Sweep it all up. Things related and not. In order to uh, put together a explanation for what this was about and wh- what we're going to do about it. Right. And Saddam was on there on 9-11. Uh, yeah. So today I want to... Uh, go massive. Like take, take a Donald. Leaf, take a leaf out of Donald Rumsfeld's uh, notes and go massive. Um, kind of. Because in the context of what we were just saying about bullshit and nonsense and people talking nonsense on social media... Uh, and analysing the nonsense. Yeah, and it just being... Blast yeah, them. yeah. Uh, and it's just going nowhere, basically, and just being noise, mostly noise, and no one really telling the truth, no one being able to ha- apprehend the truth, uh, for the most part. Um, it's... Um, the problem with that is that I think people don't understand the macro... don't have a macro understanding <clears throat> of, of the situation, of... Because of, there is a macro... There are macro events or a ma- macro uh, perspective, let's say, on, uh, that's global, that informs all of these different aspects of the bullshit, all, all the different aspects of bullshit, all the different flavors of bullshit that are being spread uh, by the media and talked about by the media and talked about then by people who absorb it from the media and for, by government and who absorb it from government and then they talk about it, you know. So the government, like, catapults government media catapult piles of ste- steaming piles of, of subjective nonsense out onto the pub- public uh, you know the sphere the information sphere and then the people then take it up and you know talk about that bullshit basically talk about the manure and, and try and make something out of the manure yeah. you know yeah, yeah. Um, clean it they try and clean it up clean it up, it up present it's it as still present. So this is what the bullshit should look like yeah but it's still bullshit. In this bullshit, you can see a bit of what's actually going on. Um, so, yeah, a um, couple of things. Obviously, the, the kind of major one, I suppose, is is the situation in Ukraine, but the fact that it's not limited to Ukraine and the war in Ukraine isn't just a war in Ukraine. That's a big part of the kind of bullshit that I'm thinking of. It's where there's a lot of people actually just thinking... Russia invaded Ukraine, that's very bad, because war is bad. You know, forget about Iraq war, Afghanistan, Libya, Syria, that's, they were all good wars. You know, we don't have to worry about those really very much. What wars? Well, 
Yeah, I didn't even... You know, yeah, yeah, whatever. Yeah. That stuff that happened, whatever. Anyway, this war is horrible, terrible, because I'm told that it's horrible and terrible and Putin is an aggressor and Ukraine are, are innocent victims and we should all support them. And that's all there is to it. It begins and ends there. begins with Russia's unjustified, unprovoked, unnecessary uh, invasion of Ukraine that had no reason other than just for the sake of invasion because who doesn't like a bit of invasion now and again when you're a bit bored? And it ends with, the argument then ends with, they should stop doing that, get them out by supporting Ukraine. That's all there is to it. There is nothing beyond that. The history it's, begins and ends with that. Right, it does, and, and that, that situation does not have any context to it. It doesn't relate to anything. It doesn't relate, relate to anything broader. There are no motivations. Um... On, on the part of Russia, on the part of the West, in terms of what they're doing in that conflict, that go beyond that conflict, right? Mm. It's simply Russia bad for naughty boy invading Ukraine. The West doesn't like invasions of foreign countries by anybody, including themselves, and they're there to stop it. On principle, yeah. just on pure principle, you know? When you see somebody doing something bad in public and you have a response, you have a kind of response where you want to say, that's bad, stop doing that because it's bad. That's basically what's going on in Ukraine. That's the motivation of the West. Yeah, and it's backed up. It's not just words. They, they mean it. They mean what they say because they give away their military material to, to Ukraine. Yeah. And uh, they put all the rest of us on uh, an energy diet. Right. And it's all justified to by... To get Putin right. um, to save Ukraine. Yes. That's um, it. And it's obviously something that the West feels very, very strongly about because, like you just said, they seem to be putting Western countries in a very perilous economic situation that looks set to only get worse over the, over the short term in the next year or two. Uh, you know, we're talking about energy crisis, energy shortages, blackouts, food shortages, heating shortages, all that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, the, the basics of people's ability to, you know, keep body and soul together is, is going to be put, it seems, put in the, uh, under threat. Um, all on the basis of a moral decision to push on with, with stopping Russia doing what it's doing in Ukraine simply because it's morally bad. We're willing to sacrifice the lives and livelihoods of, you know, the golden billion in the West in order to push through on this point of principle. And there's no other solution other than to continue to sanction Russia, antagonize Russia, give weapons to Ukraine and help Ukraine, prolong the conflict effectively, effectively by helping Ukraine keep fighting until Russia's defeated. Mm. And if that takes 10 years, whatever, we'll keep doing it. And if by the end of two of those 10 years, the West is in ruins, well then, so be it. It was all worth it. Yeah. And there's no other solution. We couldn't just walk away and say, okay, Putin probably just wants like Eastern Ukraine, let him have that, and then we'll just sort it out. No, that's not an option. On point of principle. Yeah. So that's their argument. Does it make sense? No. It does, it does if you're a Westerner. And the more Westerner you are, well, the more you believe it. Yeah, it makes sense to uh, on a very superficial level if you don't think about it at all. Uh, but you have to assume that 
to believe that you have to you have to believe that the West is a prince has, has set very high principles. Let's say a very has a very high moral standard where they really 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 don't like war or conflict anywhere, and they will seek to stop it at all costs, even to their own detriment and to the detriment of, of, of their own people. So, in order to prevent suffering in Ukraine, they'll they're willing to create a lot of suffering in in, in Europe and in America. Because it's the moral good. Because they're such a moral group of countries, right? They don't like war. They've never engaged in war. They've never engaged in any wars without, without justification. They've never killed anybody. They, they ab- abhor even a single death in conflict. That's what you have to believe. Mm. Does well, that make sense? In fairness, there's a further motivation they give for it. If we don't stop Putin here, he or another Russian leader could go on and do it somewhere else as well. So it's on principle now and for the future. I'm just fleshing out mm. their articulation right. because it's a little bit more plausible. We're going all in here because down the road, this could actually get far, far worse, worse in quotes. Yeah. They don't really explain what worse means, but... Well, Putin would like over on Europe and, and, and ultimately America. You'd have Russian troops in Washington, D.C., right? That's the kind of rhetoric you get. Mm. You certainly have Russian troops in Europe. Yeah, in Europe. Spreading across Europe. Is there any evidence for that? Is there any reason to believe that? If you look at the actual details, again, that's what I'm saying, it's a kind of very superficial take on it. If you scratch below the surface, you realise that that narrative falls apart. Right, when you start to look at context properly. But right. like you just said, the context is bleached and all you have is, oh, Jesus, this just erupted earlier this right. year in February. Right. That's time, that's a moment, that's year zero yeah. in the beginning of history right. for Westerners. So from that year zero, they can project any kind of horrible future they want. Right. Putin's in Estonia... Latvia, Belarus, well, already in Belarus, Poland, mm. etc. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah, I think any reasonable person would say that it's the narrative is false. That that narrative is is childish, naive, immature, just purely false based on history. I mean, the, the idea that the West is this moral crusader and that hates conflict and uh, will do anything it can to stop any kind of suffering is completely false based on their track record over the past twenty years. They have no problem in launching wars. Have had no problem in launching wars of aggression that killed hundreds of thousands of people, and they didn't blink an eye. Uh, so, it doesn't make sense that that narrative that they're trying to protect Ukrainians doesn't hold any water. Basically, so there has to be something else. Is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. There has to be some other reason. Any rational person would say there's got to be more to this. What's the real reasons for doing it? Right. So that's what I mean by looking at it, going macro or going <laughs> uh, going uh, going massive. Massive. Uh, and look at, and trying to understand what the motivations are, you know, and flesh them out basically, in, in terms of the, the West motivations and, and Russia's motivations. I mean, we've talked a lot about Russia's motivations already, but we haven't really, I don't think, talked about too much about the West's motivations, like uh, in detail. Let's say mm-hmm. what they really perceive as the threat, why they're going all in on Ukraine. I mean, it's difficult to do that because so few of them are honest. Yeah, but we can we can hmm. glean it okay. uh, ourselves. I think you we, have we to. Can, you have to right. deduce it. You cannot. There's a take their word. Just to, just to back up what I'm saying here in terms of from from a high level source and what higher level source you have other than a banker, right? The governor of the Bank of England. He was interviewed a couple of days ago by um, Channel Four News in the UK, and this is just a section of the video. Yeah, where it's only a few only. I only really want to play about 10, 20 seconds of it. Just go ahead from that point. 
I was at the Bank of England and spoke to the Governor, Andrew Bailey, after his announcement and began by asking him oh, how her. worried he was mm. about the prospect of a downturn longer than the Great Depression of the 1930s. Well, I am concerned, obviously. This is not something that any of us want to see. I would, however, come back to the, the huge shock that this country and other countries are experiencing at the moment to our national income. And I'm afraid it's predominantly coming from events in Ukraine. Right, so you've had no choice than to act as you did today. Yes. But I wonder, given that so just taxes are at their highest since... World uh, so what you're saying is... Huge shock to our national income from events in Ukraine. And so he's basically explaining, she's asking him about the interest rate hikes where the Bank of England put up interest rates to the highest they've been for since 2008 or something like that, uh, to 3%. Um, and that's an attempt to offset inflation because you increase interest rates, uh, you decrease, uh, you know, <clears throat> the likelihood of people will borrow. Uh, uh, and, and decrease uh, spending, get de them to save. Uh, so that people won't be able to get access to so much money, basically, from banks, basically, because the interest rates are higher. So then they'll stop spending. They don't have it, so they won't spend it. Therefore, inflation will come down. But then when inflation goes too low, you have to, uh, um, you have to drop interest rates. So it's kind of seesaw, you know what I mean? You mm. to, you know, so you can end up, and that, that's what they do all the time, is that kind of seesaw between interest rates and inflation. Uh, they try and get it to about 2% or whatever and try and keep it there. It goes up and down or whatever. But um, the problem this time is there's an external factor. That could well that could end up well. That's, that's what story. they say. There's yeah. an external well. There is an external factor in the terms of them messing in a certain sense with uh, uh, energy prices and with you know they're putting uh -huh. in, uh, adding in a factor artificially. Let's say but, that yeah. that that has an effect on on in theory at least from their narrative has an effect on on inflation, on effect on interest rates, etc. That um, is beyond the normal. Let's say the normal way that they mm -hmm. tweak inter interest rates and, and inflation. You know uh, what are we going to say? The inflation was going up way before. Yeah, for sure. But this, that was COVID. That was COVID. But that's again, that's even before that, Putin has actually laid this out. When he's saying, yes, I admit, I can, he can be objective. And that's, he says, I can admit that our intervention in Ukraine has been an external, for all the other countries around the world, an external factor in an economic shock for them. Mm -hmm. But it is far more insignificant than... And then he lists two main things that have taken place in the last 10 years. Their handling of the 2008 crash mm -hmm. and QE, quantitative easing, money printing, mm -hmm. which ramped right the hell up mm -hmm. with lockdowns. Right, well, they started... And the pandemic response. They throwing money at people, basically. Especially so, the US government started throwing money at Americans. Yeah, citizens. and these guys never... <clears throat> they never would talk about inflation. They never acknowledged... Uh, possibly even fiddled the numbers. That's why they were so relieved when the Ukraine war started. They went, oh, Jesus, finally we can actually release the actual numbers backdated from a couple of years ago and blame this guy Putin for it. Right. But anyway, yeah, but anyway, he, that's they, a quibble but, relatively. But, but, right, and the narrative there is from the Governor of the Bank of England is that, you know, uh, the, the main factor in, in any economic crisis, and she prefaced it by saying, we're, are we looking at a, you know, there's talk of us facing into an economic recession worse than the 1930s, the Great Depression of the 1930s, right? Which reminds me of the very beginning of COVID. Right. They put that message right out there. Everyone was like, what the hell are they talking about? A worse economic depression than the 1930s. They mm -hmm. wanted you all to know that was coming. Yeah. yeah, and like you said, it's probably because they know that their, They're on a one -way their economic track. system is unsustainable, let's say. They look down the line and they say it's not sustainable, basically, the printing of uh, the 
free free for all let's say printing of um of 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 particularly dollars and western currencies fiat currencies just pump print, printing uh, money willy nilly let's say to finance their debt etc a, a totally unsustainable system especially in the context of them looking down the line and seeing an actual economic you know hard economic change coming in terms of global the global balance of power like the global balance of economic power particularly uh, the threat to America, the dollar as a reserve currency, um, to which, to a large extent, Western currencies are tied as well, if that was ever to... Um, and, and that has been in the air been for, for a long, long time. time. But I guess worse and worse as time goes yes. on, right? Yeah. And now the rubber is starting to hit the road. Okay, but let's uh, let's not interrupt your, your train of thought on this. Mm. She prefaced that with him to, to the well, bank. The reason, bank the, reason, the reason I said that, the reason I, I just... Uh, we just played that, and I wanted you to hear what he was saying. Is that he, as the governor of Bank of England, who I suppose is not, you know, is, has his finger on the pulse, let's say, and knows more than most people, um, he is aware that the situation in Ukraine is the primary reason for Western countries possibly looking into uh, an economic crisis worse than the 1930s. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, the context in which that's obviously happening is, gets back to what I was saying before, is that the only reason the situation in Ukraine, at least ostensibly on the face of it, the only reason the situation in Ukraine could be causing, could, thre- could be threatening to cause an economic crisis worse than the 1930s is because of Western countries' response to Russia entering Ukraine. Not because of the fact of Russia entering Ukraine, but, but, Russia, but the Western response to it. What he's referring oh, so to, san- what he's referring to specifically spe- is the sanctions. Backfired so spectacularly. We, we, we were right, well, they're cutting off their nose to spite their face type yeah. thing. What do you expect? We're like, I mean, to the extent that they're doing that because there's evidence that, you know, there's a lot in a lot of different European and Western countries, they're not actually, there's a lot of... Um, workarounds. Workarounds for different, they're still getting a lot of products and materials from Russia and they're getting Russian energy, you know, through the back door in a certain sense or, you know, they change the... They put a different stamp on Russian oil and call it someone else's oil, and then they buy it. Or fertilizer. Yeah, but there is there are other aspects where obviously, I mean, the sanctions are to a certain extent, to to some extent, real, and they are having that whatever impact they're having on the economy. But he's, you know, suggesting that it's, uh, you know, this is if if you read between the lines, it's being willfully done. The West doesn't have to do this against Russia, except on some moral principle. So they're destroying their own economy and forcing Western populations into a, a situation where the, there's a worse recession than in, in the 1930s without actually having to do it. It's only on a point of principle. Well, Again, I guess it brings the, me up to the question, why? Well, that, that can't be true, so yeah, why are you actually doing it? There's What's an the incongruence picture? here. He, when he's speaking with her, he sounds like he has not regret so much. Um, he's worried. He said, that's what the word he used. He said, I'm, I, say, I am worried about this. Mm-hmm that the cost of us doing this is about to turn everything, turn everything tits up. Yeah. Um, well, he so did. the incongruence is, how do you match what the government of the Bank of England is saying with what every other institution of government is saying? We must double down, triple down, Well, he's not down. suggesting we shouldn't do it. He's saying yeah. the situation in Ukraine is what's causing this. Now, he would obviously blame Russia, like they all do, and that he doesn't, he's not questioning the response the validity or the appropriateness of the response. He's just saying that it's a negative consequence that we just have to deal with because we have to go forward with our moral position of sanctioning Russia because of what it's doing in Ukraine, which, like I said at the beginning, is 
from the point of view of the West's moral history doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Uh-huh. Therefore, there's another reason. There has to be another reason. There has to be another motivation. Something more serious, something more real, and something more dire pertaining, uh, involved with Russia's invasion of Ukraine that poses a direct existential threat to the West, which is the real reason that they're responding in the way that they're responding. And that it's not just, it hasn't just started now. They've, obviously, we've, as we've talked before, the West has had Russia in its sights for quite a long time. So what is yes. the real reason? What is the real threat that the West perceives? And how did, and more importantly, how do they think that doing what they're doing in Ukraine is going to potentially um, avoid the negative consequences that they foresee from the negative consequences for themselves? Right? Obviously, we're talking around the topic here. That we're talking, yeah. well, we, ta- we mentioned it in a certain sense the West's economic, uh, the untenable nature of the West's economic uh, model, let's say, or system right now, the way they've been printing money and, and the threat from the other 7 billion people on the planet, the other the countries uh, where, where those other 7 people live, and the threat that they pose to Western hegemony and Western dominance in the unipolar world. Um, but again, it's not exactly clear what they think they're going to achieve by doing what they're doing in Ukraine to offset that problem. Yeah. Um, Do you know what I mean? That's, that, for me, that's a big question. Yeah. When you take away the narrative, what, what are they doing in Ukraine? What do they expect to achieve in Ukraine? For, forget about humanitarianism and Slavo-Ukraini well, well, and protect well, Europe. Let's take them at their word. Regime change in Moscow. Right. Why? That's what they said at the outset. Right. This has to stop this Russian mm-hmm. regime. And regime is the, the true word to use here because classically in international relations, regime is not just the figurehead and the surrounding government institutions, but it's the, actually it's the ideology or the way, the mode of thinking that rules a country. Mm-hmm. That's what regime dictionary de- definition is. So they want to change the actual regime mm-hmm. of Russia. Right. Because, because it's of what Russia has been doing, because of its, its status as a, as a the major, you know, the biggest country in the world, massive amounts of natural resources, and it not being the most line. natural resources. Russia sits right. on about seventy-five trillion dollars worth. The next country, number two in the world, is the United States at forty-five trillion dollars. Mm. De facto, on paper, there, Russia is twice as rich yeah. in real terms right. as the United States. Right. Um, in real terms, not not services. Actual, uh, actual raw materials and stuff, things. Um, uh, we get some, so we can carry on with. We're focused on the West here, but I can feed in now how Russian Putin has articulated this year in speeches how he sees it from their side mm-hmm. in the macroeconomics. He's like, for too long now, countries like ours have served as uh, well the slur, the slur John McCain said about Russia right. it's just a giant gas station we have served as providers of raw materials for you then in turn when we try to use the cash we receive to then buy technologies off you you sanction us left right and centre and mm-hmm. you make it really hard and we, there's a permanent trade imbalance and it's just all one way traffic right. you get the goods that you need to maintain your positions and the rest of us are we just get, supposed to suck it up you know, and he says we're sick of that. We're done with that. Right. And but he's he's articulating on behalf. He, 
pretty much said on behalf of the other seven billion who are still too afraid to. Mm-hmm. And he's no longer afraid to. Now, it's, you, it's, a, it's a question of the cart before the horse here. Is it Ukraine that stopped him from being – or was he always looking for an opportunity to say what he really thinks about how things are structured at the moment and what he would like them to be instead? Mm-hmm. You know? So did he, <clears throat> did he use Ukraine to – Start saying, no, this is how it's going to be. Because in the end, what you've got is uh, it, in the articulation of both sides after this special military operation began, you've got the real issue between the lines of what they're both saying. The West is saying, no, 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 no more of this. Um, you can't just decide what you want and upset our, quote, rules-based order, which we've maintained since, as Millie said, World War II. And Putin's saying, actually, yes, I can. Your system since World War II is inherently unfair. Mm-hmm. And it's not just to us, but to everyone else in the, quote, second and third worlds of, of this planet. Mm-hmm. There, there, are, there are more of us than there are, than there are of you. Mm-hmm. Your golden billion, isn't it, your time of living like this is coming to an end. Mm-hmm. Um, now, he's, he's, so there he's articulating a hope, a, a normative position. This is what I would like to see. This is what ought to be. Mm-hmm. So that's ideological, so to speak. Mm-hmm. But then he's still touching on the same basic underlying global structural issues as the West are. Mm-hmm. The question you have is, well, if you, if you listen to what both are saying, who is right? Um, so in, in a sense, then Putin is also articulating and, and acting on a point of moral principle. Right. They both believe they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, one, yeah, but one's, the West's moral principle is that we're at the top table we get the lion's share. That's the way it's been since the Second World War. That's the way it should continue. Morally, we should get to continue the dominance that we have created for ourselves into the future. The underdogs say, morally, that's not fair, especially not just from the point of view of, um, uh, like, morally on a principle not right, but rather on a very, in a very real way, uh, we are getting an unfair deal. You know, we, we're not just a bunch of underlings here. We actually have a lot of power and control and influence ourselves. And we should, we, we want to, we want that to be, uh, that influence to be, to be recognized and felt on the world stage. We want to take a pl- our place at the table that we are due based on our, based on very, very hardcore, very real concrete things, right? Like resources, all that kind of stuff. Um, and that sounds fair. So which one of those two is morally it depends what your depends what your religion is, but from from a strict up from a strictly you know generally accepted understanding of morality, someone who is in a dominant position and is abusing that position is morally is not morally uh, right. Yeah. Is not in the, does not have the moral high ground. Someone who is pushing against that and, and demanding for uh, uh, more justice and fairness negotiated, that you would say that well that sounds reasonable. They should actually have a a, a bigger share of the pie type thing because yeah. they're entitled to it and the only reason they're not is because you're kind of keeping them keeping them down keeping them enchained in, in, in somewhere or chained in somewhere somewhere or other yeah. and so at, at that point if there's no agreement then it has to be it, the great leveler or the great decider is okay if you claim Russia that you have the power and the, the might to take your place at the top table go ahead and do it that's the Show unspoken it. thing. But before, yeah, the unspoken thing is in the end, you have to use force to, right. to, to show by example, not just to the mm-hmm. West that you're serious, but also to other countries that are kind of waiting. Yeah, multipolar world sounds awesome, Vlad, but um, you want to 
show us how it's done, what, what you have in mind, because you know, they're not going to get off our backs until somebody stands up to these people, mm-hmm. right? But before we get there, before it becomes articulated uh, through war, through physical force, mm-hmm. like it always does at the end of the day on this planet, um, the Western comeback to, hang on, we'd like a, a fair share of the pie, it's kind of like in the classical um, left versus right debate within the West. You've got your capitalists who'll say, oh, so you want, you want you know, fairness and distribution of wealth you bloody socialist, yeah. why don't you <clears throat> earn it? Why don't you do the work that earns you a place at the table with me? So Putin, well, do the work. Putin answered that directly in yeah. another speech recently. He gave examples of, of, of how they get hamstrung over and over again. He said, Western companies will come in, as happened in the 1990s in Russia. They won't just you know, do business within the country, either to create a market of customers there or to help the export of the stuff they need back to their high-tech industry back home in Europe and the United States. Mm-hmm. They'll come in and they'll buy everything out such that there's no more industry mm-hmm. in that sector. Mm-hmm. They, they destroy competition. That's their idea of fairness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he gave an example, the Russian uh, aerospace, uh, not aerospace, uh, yeah, aircraft industry, which just wiped out in the 90s. They had to rebuild from scratch. Mm-hmm. They lost the engineers, the know-how, the hangars, the runways, everything. Mm-hmm. They just bought all of it. it was that, it's that kind of thing that he's talking about. Um, this isn't just like, give us our money because we're poor and socialists right. and new capitalist Westerners. No, they, they maintain their position unfairly. Right. Exactly. Um, uh, yeah, so... Uh, the, the sanctions, the sanctions long before now, forget the sanctions that started primarily in 2012 with the Magnitsky Act. Mm-hmm. No one ever remembers probably, but that began with a humanitarian justice case because mm-hmm. a guy had been unfairly killed in Russia. That got John McCain on board. He helped push the Magnitsky Act, which began sanctions against Russian companies mm-hmm. and members of the Russian government mm-hmm. in 2012. To cut them out of the, out of the, out of the, out of the sphere of influence, basically. To cut them out of but the e- economic sphere. Specifically, it prevented them from buying key things they needed mm. for their own incipient growing industries, right. their own domestic industries in various sectors. Mm. But there was no countermeasure. The Russians were still negotiating and enacting, uh, acting on long-term contracts for gas to you, oil to you, heavy metals to you, et cetera, et cetera, mm-hmm. across, including to American companies. And mm-hmm. Putin explained this in one of his recent speeches. He said that had the effect of having sort of roughly, for argument's sake, parity in trade volume level between the countries and teetering it like this. Mm. Uh, over the last 10 years, the West has just taken and taken and added sanctions for various reasons. Mm-hmm. They're all different narratives as to why we're increasing these sanctions. Mm-hmm. This year, there's an obvious reason why Putin's an evil invader, so they slapped on maximum sanctions. Mm-hmm. But those sanctions were growing and growing. And it, the, what it was doing was here and there strategically targeting anything Russia needs to develop, right. block them. Right. Don't block those sales, but keep it wide open on all the goods, the dust, the oil must flow continuously in our way. Right. Aluminum we need, anything for space rockets, uh, our, our, industry. our space industry. Or any industry. So it, it, it's, it's this duplicitous, long-term structural um, bias mm-hmm. of where there is an intelligence, so to speak. Mm. It, it all seems to be done ad, ad hoc. Now it's, you know, to defend human rights because Magnitsky was killed mm. in prison. Now it's blah. Now it's there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's different reasons given. Mm-hmm. But it all had one overarching mm. meta, macro purpose yeah. behind it. It was to shrink 
uh, Russian access to stuff they need mm-hmm. that keeps them contained. Mm-hmm. Now they don't have a com- now they need what a whole new fleet of aircraft. Well, yeah. they have to buy from Boeing or whatever. So so since then or Airbus. So since since you know over the past ten fifteen years or whatever, the West, particularly America and its European allies, have seen Russia have seen that Russia has made a decision to do something about this this. Ad- address this imbalance. Putin said he took the decision after the beginning of the sanctions. Magnitsky, he said, right. what we realize is we're going to have to do import substitution. We're going to have to find internal. We're going to have to start to build and produce the things we need that we can't get from them. Right. Or look elsewhere. And the look, West look saw that. East. And it had various levels of success depending on the sector. Mm-hmm. And the West saw that. Do you know what their, their response was? Shit, we need to double the sanctions. Yeah. And so they doubled the sanctions, and then the Russians went, right, do more of that. Let's, mm-hmm. We need more um, homegrown import substitution, yep. and so on and so forth. And what the, what's happened over the last 10 years is that they grew in confidence that they could do so. Mm-hmm. At, at this point, there's very little they need from outside. Or uh, from the now, West. He doesn't want to be autarkic. What's ironically... The West hopes is being produced as a replay of the Cold War, where the Soviet Union went, you know, like that. Okay, we produce everything at home. In fact, we are we expressly articulate in, in our overall macroeconomic policy autarky. Britain said, "I don't want that." No, that, that's I why want they're an looking, open trade. They're looking to the rest of the world, not the West. The countries that aren't sanctioned, and they're looking to to the East and to the southern. Uh, southern countries, and that's, and that's where BRICS comes from, right? That was uh, was primarily a, a kind of Russian, uh, uh, a Russian-inspired uh, grouping of of, of of these different countries, uh, an attempt by Russia to basically put together uh, a cooperation or to, to, to create a cooperative council or cooperative meeting of of, of groups of uh, everybody but the West, basically, and it's you know. The, the West End response to that by putting pressure on those other countries or attempting to put pressure on those other countries to not do that, you know. So it's all the, the West and in particular America, again, with its European allies, uh, they, they're fighting a losing battle, it seems, that, that they're trying to stop the tide from turning and the tide yeah. will turn eventually. That's um, why the Russians speak in those terms. Right. Look, it's inevitable, it's ir- irrevocable. Mm. There, are, there, are objective, there are objective underlying processes afoot that they can't stop. It's right. going to end 500 years and of the status quo. In theory, you would think that someone who's at the top table, say at the head chair at the top table, has been living high on the hog for quite a long time, a, a bit of a glutton, let's say, <clears throat> you know, oppressing and somewhere or other, keeping others down getting a land share, etc., uh, that person could uh, see reality for what it is, see the tide eventually going to turn, and say, okay, we need to go on a bit of a diet here. We need to share a little bit more. We need to be more reasonable. We need to kind of like bring in these other countries, allow them to, you know, not not, not attack them and try and sanction them, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, well, some the of problem, their best thinkers do see that. Jeffrey right. Sachs, um, John Mearsheimer. Right. But practically, is it possible because it seems that their the West response to that idea is absolutely not. They respond to it as if it's almost an existential crisis that it would mean our destruction. Yeah, it's the absolutism that's scary. Is yeah. it true though? In the sense that, do they see as part of this turning of the tide? Are we looking at uh, the dollar no longer being a reserve currency of the world, and in which case the massive amount of of, of national debt that the U.S. has in the, the, the order like trillions and trillions and trillions. Ten, dozens of trillions of yeah of dollars in debt, i.e., do, dozen, 
trillions and trillions of dollars out there floating around um, because the dollars are reserve currency. If that's no longer the case, all those dollars have to effectively come back home, yeah. and you have a massive contraction of the of the of the of the U.S. economy. And by definition, or by association, let's say European economies suffer significantly. Well, they as well all they all go into default. Right, they're all doing the same thing. Um, well, I, I have two possibilities here. One is that it, it was objectively always going to happen. That's a kind of more fatalistic thing, mm. where the debt was accumulated <clears> so far, and there was always going to be. Uh, a massive diet and quite a sudden, a sharp one because, well, that's one side. On the other side, there's the theory that it could have been managed, right. that it could have but been deflated before now. carefully. Hmm. Um, but they're greedy. The they last hope for that happening was Trump. Hmm. Trump was going to, he said, it's complex to see through him and, and you want to be careful not to project too much onto him because he's tense. <laughs> he doesn't ever sound like he... Knows, kind of grasp about what these are some complex, high level, highfalutin things. But I think he did have a nose for it. I think mm-hmm. there's enough evidence that he did get basic business that acumen. he could he could talk big and leverage American position as it is. Mm-hmm. Its base is all around China, for example. But, at the same but not time, use it to actually provoke right a, piece a war in Taiwan, but go to Beijing, talk to Xi. And do deals, mm. and but by deals were they, were they were going to well, he was going to. Uh, yeah, he had his multi-trillion-dollar infrastructure plan. He was going to rebuild American industry, um, deglobalize the United States. Um, yeah, pull it, pull its enormous global reach back from trying to hog the whole of the global table, to just you know, more like its end of the table. Yeah. To try and I, I think he saw <clears throat> it like that. I think that's... But he's gone. Um, well, is he? Maybe he's back. We'll talk about that in a mm. minute. But um, the the truculent, the truculent extra, the absolutism we saw of the four years of getting Trump was an expression of the same absolutism we're seeing now with not backing down an inch with what Russia wants uh, vis-a-vis Ukraine. Mm. It's, it's the same. So I think it's more and more looking like the, of the two possibly objective trajectories in the United States. They're going to fulfill uh, their own worst prophecy, which is their paranoia that we will be shafted by everyone else outside our frontiers. They all hate us. You know, no one likes us. Um, they're creating the situation where that is going to be objectively the case. And by pushing it to the wall, they're going to have a sharper more pronounced crash. Right. Yeah. And that's, is, that's not necessary. We, <clears throat> 10, 15 years ago, we would have like, you know, savored that. But I think as we grew up and grew up at wise, we realized how that doesn't mean it's good news for, especially, it's no good especially for us in Europe. <clears throat> it's no good for anybody. Uh, we're also, you know, tied into mm-hmm. the American system. Mm-hmm. But, um, everyone's going to hurt. The brinkmanship of the United States in matters of war and economics are going to hurt everyone now. Mm. Yeah, but again, we haven't answered the question of what, how Ukraine, how the West sees Ukraine as doing anything to prevent, um, prevent the rise of the East, let's say, or the well, rise of peer peer competitors. Maybe, maybe we can adjust. Their stated fear is that 
well, you don't understand. If we let him get away with this, he'll go on to do da da da. Maybe it's it's something to do with that, but a bit different. It's more like if he if we let him get away with that, all the other Trumps in quotes out there, all the other Putins, Erdogan G. Remember as George Soros thinks global enemy number one is G, not Putin. Um We'll be emboldened by we'll a, be emboldened a when it'll to hit. threaten to use force or to use force to reorder their near neighborhood and or their global more broader global interest with the use of that force. Mm. Um, as such, then their fear that oh God, you don't understand. If Pax Americana ends, everything turns into an archaic jungle. Mm. Has a sort of truth to it. Um, but it's not. It's pr- it's probably off, objectively, because part of what's happened behind, under the surface, over these last three four decades, is that the world has changed in the sense that military technology is now available to everyone. Mm. Iran is playing its part to kick NATO butt, so to speak, in Ukraine. In Ukraine. Mm-hmm. How, how that shouldn't be happening. Mm. Objectively, they sanctioned the hell out of them. But remember, the sanctions had the counter effect. Iranian built up its own mm. industry, which produced its own I think, forms of drones, which are... So it, I think there's something non-linear going on here in a certain sense. It's, it's more about it, and it, has, it relates to the information war and perception, that if Russia is able to get, get is able to get away with what it's doing in Ukraine or let's say to win in Ukraine and the West is seen to lose then the perception of Russia Russia's status in the world increases and all of, and that of all of its allies and not only that but if Russia's status increases as someone who can go toe to toe with the West and win they'll back down then Russia you know by by definition has a lot more uh, credibility and a lot more power effectively a lot more power uh, maybe most directly through its influence on these other countries. Like we were talking about before that uh, a lot of other countries in the East have uh, shared Russia's um, view of, uh, negative view of the American-dominated unipolar world and they would like more of a share of the pie, let's say, that they're entitled to, but none of them were in a position for what, for different reasons are willing to actually go uh, toe-to-toe with America and, and see who blinks first. So... Russia was the one who was talking, hatched this plan, let's say, and proposed it to these other countries. And they all said, yeah, well, it sounds good. Like, and, you know, we'd like to see that happening. But, you know, why don't you go on ahead and uh, go ahead and see how you get on and we'll watch and we'll see how things progress. And, and then, then we'll, we'll hedge our bets and then we'll decide who we're going to go with. So Russia, in a certain sense, had to go alone, you know, at least in the overtly, you know, publicly, which is what they've done. Um, but, yeah, then, so Russia, if it if it is seen to have prevailed in Ukraine, or and more specifically uh, against the West, against America, um, then a lot of other countries that up until now have been tacitly supporting it or you know, behind the scenes supporting it will become a bit more overt in their support and be more emboldened to say to America, you know... Um, for, exa- well, for example, the, re- the recent thing with... I'll get uh, Russia to beat you up again if you don't... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> if you don't uh, and a stop recent with us. example maybe is Saudi Arabia. Yeah, telling, right. telling Biden, yeah, your midterms. We, I know we normally do what you want before the midterms, so that you know gas prices mm. are where you want them to be in time for midterms, but not this time. Yeah, um, <laughs> which produced a response in right. the United States, which was Saudi Arabia better, you know, book up or mm-hmm. it's going to quote face consequences, which produced a counter response. From somebody in Saudi Arabia saying, right. you, you, 
Just so maybe, <laughs> so maybe the best way the best way to describe this is like a ball, like again, it's a, maybe it's a, a over slightly oversimplified anyway uh, analogy, but a bully in a schoolyard who has held sway in the schoolyard for quite a long time, and one smaller guy decides he's had enough, he's going to stand up to the bully, and uh, if he wins, it's not merely about that one particular fight. If the smaller guy beats the bully or gets the bully to back down, forevermore, the bully yeah. loses There face, is an absolute Has a massive drop this, in, yeah. yeah and, and perception in the schoolyard is like, well, he's not such a big threat anymore. That bully, look, you know, he just, got, he just got, got his ass handed to him by a smaller guy. So the whole dynamic in the schoolyard changes yeah. and that then has real world effects. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. Something like that. Uh, there's also incremental changes from the beginning of Pax Americana to today. Most of the other kids in the schoolyard were happy enough with the situation as it was. Mm. Things were relatively stable. Um, they, got, they did indeed get enough security, sense of peace, enough of the crumbs, I suppose, from the top of the table. But that's been changing incrementally um, over those 70 years. The U.S. is more demanding and ever more aggressive. Um, it's forward operating bases. You know, it's border wars that sparks off. The instability it spreads. The arc of crisis Brzezinski boasted about from Africa all the way through the Middle East to Indonesia. It's, it's got to the point where people are pissed off enough, the other kids in the schoolyard, that they're just like, they're more fanboys of Putin than we are. Mm. The Prime Minister of Myanmar, Burma, whatever, was in Russia recently for some Valdai event or something, meets with Putin mm -hmm. and like says publicly, oh, thank you, sir. You're not just the leader of Russia. You're like the leader of the, the free world or something like that. Right. Of course, the Western journalists could go, <laughs> the, the, the tin pot leader of a de facto military dictatorship is calling Putin the leader of the free world. <laughs> they can scoff at that all they like, but he's articulating something that's just below the surface. And it's, you know, most yeah. countries on earth are feeling the same way. Yeah. Lavrov goes to Africa and they all queue up to shake his hand. Biden, like the Biden administration, or the State House, the State Department, is worried about it. And that puts out a freaking memo mm. warning African countries not to do that ahead of Lavrov's tour. Don't go Russian. Don't, don't, don't be doing photo shoots with, with uh, Lavrov when he mm. comes. They answer by queuing up, you know, one after the other to yeah. shake his hand. Well, there's the, this, the whole, this question is bigger in that, in that sense as well. It, it obviously expands out to the globe as well. It's not just about Russia. There's China in the background or not so much in the background as well. But uh, um, Countess, Countess von der, von der Leyen, um you joked about 10 years ago that Europe could just see a German dictator again. Well, shit. Yeah, well, she's trying to be. But she, uh, she actually, you know, made a, com a few comments this week, um, just a couple of days ago, um, somewhere in the U EU, uh, that uh, she, was she was speaking, this is from speaking on October the 12th, but anyway, it's still uh, relevant. Uh, just have a listen to what she says here. Take lithium or take rare earth metals. They are vital for our green and digital transition. No wind turbine, no solar panel without these raw materials. The demand for them will exponentially increase, that's for sure. That is good news, sure. first of all. 
because it shows that the green transition is progressing. That's good. The not so good news is one country dominates the whole global market, and that's China. So, in addition, these resources should always be extracted in a responsible way. That should be our goal, both for the environment and for local communities. So part of the solution is to step up our cooperation with like-minded partners, like Canada, like Chile, or like Australia, because together we can both secure the resources we need and promote a value-based approach to the extraction of raw materials. We must mobilize our collective power to shape global goods and the world of tomorrow. The war in Ukraine is not only a European war. It is a war for the future of the entire world. Mm. So Europe's horizon can only be the entire world. And I truly count on you to keep up the excellent work you're doing and to bring our voice and our values to all corners of the world. Long live Europe. Sieg Heil, mein <laughs> Frau, Frau Herr. Um, the war in Ukraine is not only a European war, it's a war for the future of the entire world. Now, she didn't explain it. No, that was a kind of non sequitur. What, what do you mean by that? Like, you know, first mm -hmm. of all, you talked about China and your problems that, that China is, you know, the green transition. And we need to find these rare earth minerals that will produce our wind turbines and our solar panels uh, for the green transition because that's <laughs> really going to happen and, uh, you know, in the near future. Uh, but then she segues straight into the war in Ukraine. It's not just a European war. It's a war for the future of the entire world. How does that fit in with what you just said? What's that got to do with the green transition? There's no rare earth minerals in Ukraine. Well, she just segued into that and didn't explain yeah. what she means. But that was a pretty dramatic statement. The war in Ukraine is a war for the future of the entire world. And you know what I mean? That stuff is yeah. always said, yeah. but never explained. And that's what we've been trying to explain yeah. so far in this show, is what these people mean by what the things that they say. Yeah. When they don't explain them. They make these statements that are pregnant with all sorts of yeah. ideas and implications or, or, or explanations or, or you know, backstories, but you never get the backstory. Yeah. You never get what they're really thinking about. What uh, do you think? Well, it's kind of what we said. That, uh, the war in yeah. Ukraine is a war for the future of the entire world. It's that... Um, I mean, the war in Ukraine, we talked about this before as well, that, but that the war in Ukraine, as anybody with any sense knows, was a, was a war that was provoked by NATO. In 2014, there was a, was provoked by the US effectively. In 2014, there was a coup in Ukraine, a US-backed coup in Ukraine, fully attested to effectively. Victoria Nuland caught on audio, making it very clear that this was a US-backed coup, installing an anti-Russian regime in Ukraine uh, that was obviously going to provoke Russia into some kind of action. Um, this was, I suppose, part of that was seen in advance as a way to demonize Russia because they knew Russia would do something. They knew Russia would take some action. They, they expected that Russia would eventually take some kind of action in response to a coup in Ukraine and the mobilization of the creation of a, a Ukrainian army that was going to be a direct threat to Russia right in this border. Um, and in that way, they would be able to do what they have done effectively, as everybody has seen over the past, particularly over the past eight months. They would do their best to pull Europe ideologically 
further away from Russia. And to help it along, they blow up pipelines, yeah. Right. Um, So it's a war for the future of the entire world, i.e. it's a war for the future of the rules-based international order dominated by Washington, D.C. and Brussels. Mm -hmm. Us being at the top table, getting a land share all the time, that's the future of the world. That's That's the war we're fighting right now because Russia and its allies and its growing list of allies are a threat to our dominance in the world. Why? If they... Why are they? She, because she we, gave a clue in that speech. Yeah. Like-minded countries yeah. and like-minded peoples. Yeah. What's the problem? What, what, what does she mean? What does she mean by that? That, that is pregnant with... What? Well, she means people who, who, are, who are, uh, adhere to the rules-based international order, the Western-dominated, the US, Washington, London, Brussels-dominated global order where everything is done on the basis of, you know, we tell you what to do and you do it. Yeah, exactly. So um, that's what she means by that. And, and so she's looking to other countries that have, a, have maybe some of these rare earth minerals. That, uh, But again, do they believe in the whole green transition? I mean, there's all sorts of stuff coming out now about, like there's lots of skepticism in the media even about, uh, you know, electric cars and how they're not actually green at all. They're doing, they will do nothing. If everybody transitioned to electric cars, it will reduce uh, carbon emissions by 0.00001%. Mm-hmm. You know, so um, what's, the, what's, what's their goal with that? What is their idea of that? I think their idea there is that they're trying to, they realize, they see the tide turning, they see the ultimate in, in the future, in the relatively near future, the collapse of the Western-based uh, economic model, global economic model, that is no longer tenable because of this uh, surge from, from the East, from China and Russia and other countries, BRICS. And they want to remake the global economy, but they want to get on first. Yeah, They want to say, okay, Russia in particular uh, has the most, you know, the b- biggest oil exporter or producer in the world and, and obviously oil and gas natural uh, fossil fuels it's it's number one or, or up there um, what if we just have a world an economic model that is not based on fossil fuels anymore and we control it right that's yeah. how we reset it's a great reset right we're restarting the whole global economy that we set up in uh, post-world war ii let's say with us at the top it's no longer tenable we recognize that we have enough clarity to realize that we can't keep this going anymore you know we're slowly coming around to that idea or that we're begrudgingly accepting the fact that we can't stay at the on top in this way anymore here's a different way how we can stay on top yeah with a great reset of the global economy and it's gonna you're gonna have to break a few eggs it's gonna be a bit painful you know yeah when she said, um, whatever about the green economy and the market growing for, for rare earth minerals, rare earth minerals are needed for all, all kinds of other reasons, mm-hmm. objectively. So she, she hit on something objectively true. There's great demand for rare earth minerals. True. Next one, China sits on 90% of those rare earth minerals. Also true. A normal person when faced with that objective fact. Say, let's be friends with China. Let's be friends with, let's make deals with China. Let's do, what do we have maybe that they also, that they need? And that's how they approach the whole, she she doesn't, she approaches it like, well, the, the, the ideological approach she gave was, and we must ensure, it seemed like a non sequitur again, we must ensure that those rare earth minerals and, in China, that's what she implied. She didn't say all that, but 
she implied, we must ensure that those rare earth minerals in China are uh, mined responsibly mm. using a value based a values based system. What are you talking about? It's in China. Yeah, but we want it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we want it, and we're we want it. We want it. Um, that was the whole. That was almost articulated by Madeleine Albright about Russia and its mineral wealth in the nineteen nineties, when she insinuated, and then the, the quote was kind of twisted to something a bit more articulate. But she did insinuate that the problem with Russia is that it does not responsibly manage its natural resources. If you would just let us in the door, we could, do it for, we could do it for you. And Russia's not fooled, yeah. She's talking to the window, um, you know. And you see, the values-based system, we, the collective, the country, the we she's referring to, she listed some examples, Canada, Australia. What they have in common is that those countries have been, quote, made safe for democracy. That's the ideological reason. Mm-hmm. Russia's also democracy. Oh, no, but it's an authoritarian. They have to, have to twist that away. They have to dispel. Russia's not a democracy. What's he, Russia, yeah, Russia was made safe for democracy in the 90s, but then something else happened. Mm-hmm. What they mean is countries that have been made safe for U.S. business, mm-hmm. the way we do business. Mm-hmm. Yeah, access for us. Um, China sitting on those railroads, that's – it's – you could almost hear her say that's unfair. It's not right. It's, I've come face-to-face with an objective fact. I'm going to change that objective fact. By one way or another, I'm, mm. going, to, I'm going to fucking change it. Like, what kind of mind approaches a problem like Delusional, that? Delusional, yeah. Compare that with Jeffrey Sachs, who's like, someone hang who, on, this is objective reality. We need to talk to these people. We need to try and understand them. Someone who's possessed of an ideology, an exceptionalist ideology, where the West is the best. It's been at the top. The whole look world. At her, look at her foreign minister representative. The jungle in the garden. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. He That's, said how they see it. Yeah, we Europe's, are the garden. the garden. Everywhere's a jungle. Unfortunately, it's a dirty jungle. We have to periodically go in and you know manage it to make sure our garden is, is right. kept. Yeah, yeah. They, ex- they expose the fact that they're possessed of this uh, the, uh, an ideology where we are. The absolute. We're the be best all and end ever. all. History begins and ends with us. Those right. other people are incapable of agency. They're not incapable of managing their own resources. They're incapable of everything unless we give it to them, unless we bestow civilization upon them. What they mean is, unle- in the modern age, what that means is, unless we bestow the American way of business upon them, they cannot come to the table as, a, as, a, as an equal. Hmm. No chance. Yeah. And well, that- to maintain. <laughs> A semblance of the reality that it is an unequal relationship, that we are better than them. We must do keep doing things to make them not be as good as, mm-hmm. to not have their own industry, right. their, to own, keep their, their own highways. To keep own. our illusion intact, basically. Yes. Uh, to fight off reality encroaching on our, on our delusions. But th- with people like that, I mean, th- bad things will happen. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're, they'll, they'll push to the point where it all falls down and they'll blame somebody else. As, this, as a ship of state sinks and they all go, we all go under the waves, they'll be still pointing the finger at their enemies. Um, yeah, that seems to be the general general outlook for the future. Um, moving on. Red wave. Red wave. The red wave's coming? Absolutely. It is? No. Can you feel it? No. Well, Can yes. you hear it? Can you hear it in the distance? 
today is the sixth, so it takes place on Tuesday. Tuesday, two days, yeah. And then Wednesday, Thursday, we'll hear all about it. No, it's going to take several um, days apparently to count oh, all those yeah. votes to just right. be prepared. Yeah. And also because tw- because Trump uh, because Musk took over Twitter, there's going to be a lot of disinformation on Twitter. It's going to be very hard to find reliable information on Twitter. Just you know, compared to a week ago, bef- you know, before yeah. Musk stepped in, essentially. Now a week later. Twitter's all gone to shit, and there's going to be a lot of lies, a lot of mistruths. Uh, Biden said stuff, something about stuff. He did. He did that explicitly uh, uh, that uh, on Twitter over the next few days after the elections, and when you're waiting for the election results, you're going to see a lot of allegations, claims on Twitter, uh, probably about vote rigging or that kind of stuff, and it'll all be false. Okay, just in advance, you're going to see it, yeah. and it will all be false and because be Elon Russia. Musk or Russia. Elon Musk. Musk. <laughs> Well, he's a Muscovite anyway, right? Uh, obviously. Um, it's amazing how fast they turned on him. Yeah, yeah. Didn't take from, from at all. From Green Saviour to... Um, yeah. Hmm, smacks a bit of the right. Oh, my God, he's full-on Russian agent. Yeah. Um, and he, he's having fun with it, you know, kind of trolling them back about it. But does he understand th- how serious this game is? Um, I don't think so. But... Yeah, he doesn't really seem to care very much. I, I'm interested. I, <laughs> Is there going to be... Uh, I, well, objectively, look, what would happen? What should happen? There should be a red wave, mm-hmm. definitely. Especially a, with Trump can- candidates, Trump-aligned, Trump, Trump aligned, like-minded Trumpian candidates, there should be. Mm-hmm. That's what we should see mm-hmm. on Tuesday. I'm telling you this in advance, so when anyone presents you with the opposite or different, you know... Uh, lies and bullshit have been spewed and it won't have been by us or Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, will it actually happen? Well, I don't know. I, I Maybe. Are they going to gain... The main, the main question is are they going to gain, gain control of this Congress and the Senate? Uh, because in that case, they're going to impeach Biden, according to Biden. They may even impeach Biden. Yeah. On what? I don't know. Huh? I don't know. Clause, one of the clauses has, you know, the mental um, what's mental state of the president, are they fit to... Yeah. That's what they, we're going to hit Trump with that. Trump's just, a, Trump's just a, uh, a Republican kind of cheerleader at this point, right? He's not a member of Congress, he's not a member of the Senate, he's not a member of government, he's not the president anymore, he's a former president, but he's, he's not in politics anymore. Yet he's going around leading... You know he's at the f- yeah. he, he's riding the red wave yeah. supposedly. Here he is at the he's been doing rallies all over the place. Um, <laughs> he's, he's he hasn't changed. Put it that way. Watch Biden two days ago in a fit of rage, so anger. He's so angry. We've got to stop MAGA. Calls it mega MAGA, ultra MAGA, MAGA King. I'm the MAGA King. He said, "I'm the MAGA King." We've got to. He's the MAGA king. <laughs> he is very much like he's royalty in swathes of the United States. Yeah, he's still he's still um, the favorite. Uh, anytime Republican voters are polled, something like seventy percent. He read it out, I think, at the same speech. This is actually well the clip I have from it. Um, I won't even bother playing it. It's only nine seconds. He's he's going down. He's listing the, the figures. So seventy plus percent of Republican MAGA voters would favor Trump to mm-hmm. run in twenty twenty four. And the next one down is DeSantis at like ten percent or something. 
Right. And he calls him, as he reads out the numbers, he says, Ron de Sanctimonious. <laughs> exactly, so, yeah. There's some spat going on there. Yeah. Um, the rumor is that DeSantis has been talking to rhino Republicans about running mm-hmm. as a GOP candidate mm-hmm. in 2024. And Trump's like, no, you can't do that. I made you. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I don't know how true that is in DeSantis' case, but in a lot of the case of other candidates, definitely. You know, mm-hmm. um, There's a Republican running um, for Senate in uh, Arizona. You, you've seen this guy before, Blake Masters. Um, this is his campaign ad. I kid you not. I think he's uh, even in dodgy CNN polls. I think he's his favorite to win a seat as Senator Bar- John McCain's old seat. Hmm. Have a listen. Psychopaths are running the country right now. You've got Biden, Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, Mark Kelly. These people don't care what's actually happening to you. If you're paying double for a tank of gas, they'll say, don't worry, that's temporary. If you see millions of people coming across our southern border, they'll say, don't worry, it's racist to care. Or if you're concerned that your kid's school is shut down again, they'll say, don't worry, safety first. Because in these people's minds, you can not worry enough about a virus. That's why they want to lock you in your home and force the COVID shot on your perfectly healthy three-year-old. That's what Democrats deliver today. No solutions, just hysteria. They're obsessed with their own power. That's all they think about. That's why they want you powerless and afraid. But we know what to do. You want law and order? We need a border wall. To beat inflation, we need factories right here in America. And we need schools that teach reading and writing and civics instead of racism. I'm Blake Masters. I'm running for the U.S. Senate in Arizona. And I approve this message. Because to save this country, we've got to get rid of these psychopaths. Tell us what you really think. Um, I mean, it can't get any clearer than that, can it? Yeah. Your political options. He's articulated to the wall. They probably are a lot of cycles. Um, It's more than just two ideologies. This is like two modes of being, two types of human, (laughs) who everything. When you've gone there, Mm -hmm. um, you know, so uh, objectively he's correct. So to speak, you know, we we don't even have a we don't even have a horse in this race. But I suppose the question is, objectively, will they win? Not so much votes, but will they be allowed to win? Someone like that as as the replacement for John McCain. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, maybe we shouldn't. You know, um, maybe there will maybe there will be a big red wave. But I suspect if there isn't. Just look at what happened in Brazil last week. Brazilians are not allowed to talk about it. Social media posts in Brazil talking about it are deleted. Mm. Anyone in the media there criticizing it, you know. Yeah, there's been so much talk about a it, red wave that you, you think that the, the Democrat-type people or lefty-type people uh, would be uh, already accepting of it. You know, it's almost like the media has prepared people. Even the left media has talked about this red wave and has been critical of Biden and critical of the Dems and all that kind of stuff, preparing their base f- to accept defeat without getting worked up about it, you know? 
Um, so it's, uh, that, that tells me that there is going to be some kind of a, a – I don't know whether they'll get control of Congress and, and the Senate or not, but I think there is going to be some kind of a, a, a backlash. Now, it's kind of weird because it's – supposedly that's normal, right? Supposedly that, hap- supposedly that happens all the time, right? When an administration gets in, in the midterms, there's always a backlash against the administration because – what, two years and I'm already pissed off with the administration no matter what. You know, we want, we want the other party now. You know, ready after two years, we want the other party in, you know. Although it doesn't always happen that way. But well, In the last few decades, it's consistent. Right. What it tells you is that every president who ran on a manifesto was lying through his teeth. Right. Because he was actually advancing, like, what, the small clique in right. the military-industrial complex. He wasn't giving the people wants. what he wanted, right. Obama, look at his 12 promises. Right. All broken. But he got a second term. He did. Yeah. And the Dems were, I think the Dems were pretty, pretty good uh, throughout his, uh, in terms of uh, the representation of Congress. Who do they run against them? Yeah. Mitt bloody Romney. Yeah, I mean. exactly. <laughs> um, but I think this, this, there's more likely to be a really, like a big swing towards the Republicans because it's a readjustment to the reality of what actually happened in 2020. And that's all I'll say on that topic. Because I may infringe YouTube's guidelines or something like that. But uh, you can see how, uh, you know, you know what I'm saying, right? I know what you're saying, yeah. And we're not allowed to talk about it because you're allowed to talk about politics except you can't. Yeah. Everything about right. politics except the thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, what worries me, though, is that, you know, Joe Biden immediately tweets out after the result was called in Brazil. Mm. Congratulations to Lula on winning, you know, in free and fair elections. Mm-hmm. And then the clampdown, apparently, on social media in Brazil, not allowed to talk about it. And that's probably why people took to the streets immediately. There's no, no way there's going to be a recount. There's no court saying, yeah, let's stop and look at this. Mm-hmm. There's no turning back. It was just over and done quickly, you know. And, I mean, the margin of the victory was point within a percentage point mm-hmm. in Brazil. Um, right. It's, yeah. I'm not going to say it was definitely switcheroo, but the fact that you're not allowed to talk about it in Brazil mm-hmm. isn't a good sign. And also the fact that so many people got in the streets. Mm-hmm. I mean, generally people don't do that when their side loses. Um, that happened a bit in the United States, and it was put to an abrupt end by the January 6th thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but in Brazil, I mean, it was, that was a lot of people, millions of people. Mm-hmm. on the streets immediately, road blockades, yellow vest style, working people, farmers, you know, mm-hmm. not liberals in the cities going, you know, screaming at the sky because my woke agenda candidate lost. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's people who wouldn't normally have an investment in politics. Right. Getting out by the millions. Anyway, I, I only put that in comparison. So like elections these days, you know, how can you get excited? Even if there is, even if it is, there is and it happens and it's allowed to stand a, quote, red wave, this midterms. What do you think that's going right. to, is that going to change anything? Well, it's, it's, the, it's the noble institutions. It's the, it's the executive, you know, you're, you're voting for, for either, you know, in the presidential election or in the midterms, you're voting for members of Congress, you're voting for a president, you're voting for the extant branches of government who, you know, anybody with any, understanding and there's like a, I mentioned a book the last time uh, last show we had I mentioned a book uh, called Double Government um, mm. it's been you know since the Second World War basically since the establishment 
establishment of the rules-based international order by America, um, America and then soon, not long thereafter, most other Western European countries um, created parallel governments essentially were, you know, not in a, in a kind of a deliberate conspiratorial way, but these were efficient governments, right? There were governments that were uh, people, um, you know, unelected in, bureaucrats and officials who decided that the existing branches of government um, didn't weren't very efficient at running the country, and we needed to set up unelected. The whole election thing is all about a personality cult in a certain sense, and who you like best, and who says the nicest things and stuff. But the real meat and potatoes of what actually was of, of of government policy, particularly foreign policy, but also domestic policy, um, has to be managed and pushed and, and, and controlled and directed by uh, by people who who don't who may not who, who who won't potentially change every four years you know what i mean there has to be career bureaucrats to guide the country in a particular direction which is why you don't get a change in foreign policy why america's foreign policy hasn't changed you know especially since the war on terror but even well before that there was no change regardless of what administration came in there was no change in american policy even domestic policy was very little change um because the administration, the new administration and the new members of Congress, etc., do not uh, ultimately have the decision on, on, on the direction of the country uh, domestically or in terms of foreign policy, and they haven't for a very long time, really, since since Truman, you know. Truman, they call it a Truman, in, in those circles of, of historians who talk about it, they call it a Trumanite network, because um, it was set up by Truman, because Truman set up the CIA and all that kind of stuff, and it is very much associated with uh, intel agencies and stuff, which there are in the US literally dozens of different... Uh, bureaucratic intelligence slash intelligence agencies uh, with, you know, literally employing millions of people who actually work in, effectively work in government and run the government. And not one of them is the president, the vice president, or um, any member of Congress or the Senate. At best, they're advisors. That's as far as you get in terms of seeing who they are, you know. So... Yeah, it's a bit of a joke in that sense. It's like, who cares if there's a red wave or not, you know? <clears throat> um, the only thing that really makes a difference, apparently, is, um, although it's interesting, as much as you might say that there's a parallel government or a deep state or whatever people call it, and that's true, it seems that if someone comes in who doesn't pay homage, you know, accepts the reality of that situation, of there being a parallel government, essentially, uh, a double government, uh, someone who comes into the White House, in particular the president, the office of the president, um, if they don't accept that fact on the ground, that reality about how America, and in particular how America works, um, how the country is run, then it's a problem. And that was the case, or at least that's our position, that that was the case with Trump, that Trump did not subscribe to that idea, did not, you know, he was a political outsider to a large extent, and did not pay homage to that parallel government effectively and decided, well, it says here I'm the commander-in-chief, I'm going to make some serious decisions in terms of domestic and foreign policy that really will upend the way we've been doing things for quite a long time. And suddenly that deep state, or as Chuck Schumer said, uh, intel agencies had six ways from Sunday to get back at him and take him down, and that's exactly what happened to the point of impeaching him. Um, so it is, you know, it's still the case that there is power to be uh, exercised or wielded in the office of the president, for example, in the US, but you need someone with the balls to do it, basically, or who's stupid enough to do it, uh, to try and do it. Um, 
so that's why Trump's not getting in in 2024. You don't think? No. You think he'll, he'll try to run? He will. But I think, I don't know, I think there's other things going to come down. I mean, we started this show with basically the bank, uh, the governor of the Bank of England talking about a, uh, a looming recession worse than the 1930s. I mean, that isn't just people, you know, kind of soup kitchens and uh, uh, bread lines and stuff like that. Um, that can have much more serious, especially in the modern world compared to the 1930s, can have much more serious uh, disruptive effects on society than, than, than merely people, you know, having to tighten their belts a bit, you know. Uh, it, can be, it can be much, yeah, when they say worse than the 1930s, they, they really... <laughs> they have no idea what they're talking about in that sense, you know what I mean? Because modern, the modern world is not in the 1930s. For one thing, you've got, you've got about four times the population. Okay, that's interesting because when I saw this next article, I thought, hmm, as Ukraine goes, so goes the West. Hmm. Uh, the Kiev government is now advising citizens to keep warm with cats. Hmm. This is from The Guardian today. Um, Ukraine's motivational messaging maintains morale as winter bites. Information ecosystem provides messages of defiance amid Russian energy, Russian strikes and energy blackouts. So what kind of things are they telling people to do? Um, and not just, you know, in a hypothetical scenario, like things they need to do right now to survive. So if you scroll down there a bit. Um, the adverts on Ukraine's underground system. I'm not sure what they mean by that. Is the TV system not working? Um, on the metro? Underground, right, okay. Yeah, um, yeah they've got messages of support to raise morale, but if you scroll down again, it talks about some of the things that people are being encouraged to do right now to stay warm. Um <clears throat> Ukrainian TV channels, so they are running, are running a series of adverts on how people can save energy amid government pleas for consumers to reduce usage. Under the slogan, The Rules of a Warm Country, one video advises people to use alternative methods to keep warm, including using hot water bottles and cats, as well as getting together with neighbours. Cats is a hot water bottle? I Yeah, I couldn't figure that one out. They didn't expand. Um, like to strap a cat to your feet? Yeah, hug a cat to sleep. I mean, is, is a cat going to be happy, like lying underneath your duvet? Okay, let's see what else they suggest. At your feet? <clears throat> um, there are also several segments a day featuring Ukrainians across the country demonstrating how they have prepared for the winter. One man recently interviewed said it, in the event of no electricity or gas, he would pitch a tent inside his flat and sleep in a sleeping bag. Breathing inside a small tent, he said, will maintain the heat better than a room. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Marginal difference, I'd say. So, yeah, as and Ukraine goes, so goes the West. Students that's what I'm are, wondering. Are we going to get to that point? Students are making trench candles for the front lines. They can be used for light, warmth, and heating up water or food. Okay, trench candles. Let's see a trench candle. Oh, Jesus. Ukrainian Why is it always hysterical music on Ukrainian videos? It's they love techno or something. Yeah, their brains are addled. Very good. A bunch of Ukrainians making candles. Whatever. Um, 
Yeah, is the West going to happen? No. I mean, no, the West isn't in the same position. The Western European countries are not uh, having their uh, energy infrastructure. Um, cruise missile. Okay. So that one factor makes a big difference, I'd say, you know. Yeah. But um, is that the point you were making, that over the coming years, things would break down? Uh, yeah, but in terms of a major global economic uh, crisis okay. rather than one just related to Ukraine or just energy issues, uh, specifically okay. in Ukraine. I mean, it, Ukraine's only having, I mean, like they've said, like, uh, as we know, the, particularly Kiev, but other, or other parts of Ukraine are having, uh, you know, blackouts and all that kind of stuff, primarily because their, their energy infrastructure has been, has been bombed. Yeah. Uh, when your energy system hasn't been bombed, you're in a better position to keep it going, you know. Um, right. Um, yeah, but for the West, Europe and stuff, that's down the line. I mean, I'm, you know, but again, not in, not long off distant future type thing. I'm talking, I think within the next two years, um, things are going to get worse and, and there may be some kind of a, a progressive economic kind of foobar collapse type thing. Um, and other different who knows what kind of events that but the whole thing the whole trajectory the the prognosis is downhill you know because of what we what we've been talking about which is the mindset of these people who just are doubling down on their very very bad ideas because they're delusional yeah Yeah. and they don't seem to care because they're delusional they can't care they're not based they're not uh who is it um what's his face uh carl rove reality based community is that what he called it, the reality-based community? Yeah. yeah. Uh, that reality-based community has, if, if it ever was one, is uh, no longer a reality-based community. They have taken a, a sharp turn into into illusion and delusion, basically. No, no, a reality-based community was, said, he said you people. Oh, we are in the reality-based community. Reality based. He, was, he was already he, made, he, made the divorce. He was on the spaceship of... Yeah, but he was suggesting that their reality was much more objective than us in the quote-unquote reality-based community yeah. because they were making... Making they were history's actors. They were actors, and they were creating reality as they went along. Yeah, and therefore that was much more objective than people who think things just progress, you know, from a cause and effect kind of way, one step after the other, and they analyze it and say, "Oh, look, this this happened, and then that caused this to happen, and therefore that's why this is happening." He's like, "No, no, that's not how it works. We just like decide what's going to happen now in two years, and we start putting it in place, and uh, it has no direct cause and effect. You know, the only cause and effect is us deciding." what's going to happen and then making it happen based on our own desires. It has nothing to do with reason or rationality or natural laws or anything like that. It's basically what we dream up, we make a reality. And you just are left to look at it and go, try and make some sense out of it, but you're always going to get it wrong because you don't realize that we, in, in these positions of, in, in our ivory towers, have actually created this reality out of nothing. There is no cause that you can perceive for this. Um, but that, I think that has changed now. Yeah, I mean, well, when you carry, when you pursue that path, you start to realize it's obviously a delusional path, thinking that you can just create reality as you go along without any blowback because there is an objective reality out there, reality out there that will intrude on your best laid plans, regardless of how, 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 how uh, fantastic or awesome or especially you think you are, there's a reality that will intrude. And in fact, the more you try to impose this manufactured reality on, on, on the world and on people, the more you're likely to get kickback from um, actual reality. You know? 
So, uh, speaking of actual reality, compared to what we were told is reality over the past few years, um, John Campbell, it's not just him, but it's been in there's several other people doing it, and there's not a lot of it in the media because, well, for obvious reasons. But yeah, excess deaths um, this year in many different countries um, that we have data for uh, are way up. I think is is fair to do. Now, throughout October in the UK, there's an average of uh, 1,564 extra deaths per week. Now, in 2020, the first year of the pandemic, the average for 2020 was 315 deaths per week. So we're losing way more people now from non-COVID deaths than we did from COVID deaths in the first year of the pandemic. And the main year of the pandemic, 2021, the average for the 52 weeks was 1,322. So again, we're losing way more people now from non-COVID deaths. Um, And that's uh, 24,440 people non-COVID deaths since May 2022 in the UK. This is just a huge, this is just a huge phenomenon. Now, I'll just show you this screen here because this shows, um, we're not going to look at all the excess mortalities, but this is an excess mortality here related to uh, cardiovascular disease. So anything above the line is excess mortality, anything below the line is reduced mortality. And we see that we're on the scale, of course, th- th- these are COVID related here, but, but these excess deaths, the most, most of these are not COVID related, and we see it's to the tune of several hundred deaths per week from cardiovascular-related causes. This is the overall uh, excess deaths in the UK. Um, the blue, uh, as you probably know, are COVID-related. Um, the black line is what we would expect for the time of year, based on the five-year average. And the green is the excess deaths. So we see there's quite a lot of excess deaths And if we look at the last few uh, weeks here, um, we do see that we are consistently um, above the average. The blue here are deaths where COVID is involved. Some of these were deaths more with COVID than from COVID. Um, But this clearly shows there's an excess of deaths, more than we would expect. Now, um, this we've got data here from the Office for Health Improvement and Disparities in the UK on the proximal causes. Now, um, the proximal cause of death is the immediate cause. So the proximal cause of death might, for example, be, um, as we've just seen in Mrs. Powell, a heart attack, basically, a ventricular fibrillation. Um, The distal cause of death would be whatever led to that. So we're talking about disease of the coronary arteries. Uh, The distal causes of that might be smoking, for example. Um, So really what we've got here are just what people have died of um, immediately, the proximal causes. And here we see it here. So the, the first one there is ischemic heart disease. You won't be able to see this, but I'll tell you what they are. Um, then uh, cardiovascular disease in general, then other circulatory diseases, and then heart failure. And again, the numbers here <clears throat> the numbers here are really quite large before we go on to a cancer and acute respiratory uh, infections. And all the other causes of death are there. Now, the diabetes one, we know a lot of people are dying with diabetes, um, but you'll see that's fairly low down there. This is because 
most of the people that are dying from diabetes are actually uh, dying through other causes. So diabetes can cause like arterial disease, heart disease, cerebrovascular disease, renal disease. The di it's the diabetes that's contributing towards these more immediate causes, particularly the cardiovascular causes. So we have pretty good data from the UK, really. We can see the different um, causes of excess mortality there. That last one there is uh, Parkinson's disease. But the main ones by far are the heart-related disease, uh, the ischemic heart disease and the, the heart failure. As we see, there are the main causes. Now, the higher, uh, the higher than they were, um, average of 1,564 at the first lockdown. Now, of course, it did go up and would have gone up higher without restrictions, but... Um, the point is, the point I'm making here is, you know, we had we had um, we had all these lockdowns. We had this mass vaccination campaign. We had people bouncing up and down about it. Politicians and medical officers and scientific officers strutting over the telly every night, TV every night, and now we've actually got higher levels of deaths, and no one seems to be commenting on it at all. It is utterly bizarre and inexplicable that we did so much for a certain number of deaths, now we have a high number of deaths, and no one seems to be saying a thing. It really is very, very strange that this is going on. Um, now, we don't want to get into conspiracy theory, but it just it, it's, it, to me it's inexplicable why mainstream media is not all over this and uh, shouting it from the rooftops, because there's a major phenomena that we're suffering from. Hmm, inexplicable. Oh, John. Boy. Inexplicable. We don't Explain want it. to get into conspiracy theory. Explain it to us, Neil. Why do they not care about a higher number of deaths now? Because they've not been ordered to. Mm. People, people, em people em the... emote when ordered to, pay yeah. attention when ordered to, when directed to. Mm. That They don't have any real so sovereign being. They just respond to stimuli. Well, the, and if you don't direct stimuli here or you do direct it there, well, it's like cats following the, the well, light. That's, a, that's quite a negative depiction of it, Neil. I mean, you're being unfair well, on the common well, man there. There's a social contract, you know? There's crickets, well, like there's, you said. No? Yeah. Well, that's from the media. The media may be more complicit or something, but in terms of the ordinary people, I mean, there's a social contract where the people delegate their, that responsibility to government officials and their mouthpieces in the media to tell them what's going on, mm. right? That's a kind of an agreement, that's a tacit, uh, unspoken, unsigned agreement that's between people and, and, and authority, right? Um, so, but, and it works as long as your authorities are legitimate and on the level. When they start, when they go bad, when, when, when authorities turn bad, that should be like on one of those TV shows, you know, or when dogs turn bad or when sharks go bad or something like that. Shark week. Um, when politicians turn bad, um, it's not good because they're going to basically tell you to get worked up with something you shouldn't and not get worked up with things you should. Seems that, it seems the way it, play, it seems to be the way yeah. it plays out. Yeah, and anyway. they get you supporting Nazis. Right, they can get you to do whatever they feel like. Basically. Whatever. They'll get you to do anything. Yeah. Not everyone, of course, but um, enough people. And uh, they, I suppose it's a bit like what the guy said, um, the Belgian guy, you know, 
mass formation, there's something to that, you know. Mm. Well, there's large enough numbers of people swaying a certain way because they've been activated that way. Mm -hmm. um, most will sway back and forth with them like this, you know. Yeah. But when, like they, when they're told, okay, so don't move, don't move, even though they see death all around them. No, no, don't move, don't move. Mm. A few of them start to move and it's like smack, mm. hit him, ban him, cancel him, fire him, fire, fire him from his job. Mm -hmm. um, Here, that the, works for a period of time on the others. They stop, they don't move. Yeah, this is just, I'll just, just throw it up just for fun. Here's a pictorial, uh, an image, always known as an image of, uh, of that excess mortality in August. This is back in August, but it's obviously, it's actually got a little bit worse over September and October in Europe um, compared to the five-year average or average monthly deaths between 2016 and 19. Um, so that's how much it's up there. Um, in Greece, looks like it's up, up, up around 30% uh, increase in deaths, but, huh, well, whatever. I mean, it's like, what happened? I don't know. What could cause it? What could cause that increase in non-COVID deaths? Um, what happened over the past year, year and a half? Something, is there anything new that was introduced into the body public? Literally, or figuratively, um, that that may have impacted people's health. I mean, of course, there's there's the COVID lockdowns and the shut shutting down, the mothballing of the health service and all that kind of stuff because everybody was terrified or something. Shut down hospitals and that kind of stuff, um, and focused on only a few for this wave of COVID deaths that didn't really come. Um, but uh, I think, for as general rule, problems with uh, Healthcare systems in Europe, notwithstanding, the healthcare systems are pretty much back on track at this point. But still, we have these excess deaths. So I think we have to look, uh, you know, allowing for delayed screenings and or lack of screenings for cancer and heart disease and stuff over the whole COVID lockdown craziness. Um, that can contribute to it, but I think you'd have to also look for some other sources or other factors. But um, uh, for the life of me, I can't think yeah. of anything. <clears throat> that, that, uh, well, Putin invaded Ukraine. Maybe, yeah, maybe that there's a knock-on effect of deaths yeah. in Europe as a result, mm. just from the shock. Maybe yeah. the shock of the, of Putin, or maybe what if what if it's all, what if there's too many people are taking von der Leyen and her ilk uh, in in European governments at their word and have been taking cold, cold showers. showers and then heart attacks have been going up. They did say that in the summer heart attacks were up from showers. Could be, could be that. Maybe I'm really stretching here because I can't think of anything that was introduced over the past 18 months, you know, that, that you know, anything that was kind of like, you know, if I want to a better word, kind of injected into the, the general, um, you know, discourse uh, that may have had an effect on people, uh, you know. I don't know. I can't think of anything, but I'm sure it'll occur to me at some point. Anyway, um, yeah, something that came along and jabbed right into the public discourse. Yeah, yeah. Well, no. Here's besides the elephant in the room. Here's another idea: poverty, increased poverty. That yeah. would be an effect of lockdowns, um, right? Despair. Yeah, and businesses sh shuttering, suicides. Business. I, I yeah. haven't, and people were tracking that a year ago, but then, yes, yeah, it's funny how suicide numbers just stop being reported. Mm. Um, they probably did climb 
reduce back to more normal levels mm. after lockdowns, but maybe not. Deaths of despair, poverty. Um. Two, before we just wrap up here, because it's getting a bit late, two, two things that I need you to give me your blink on. Um, Paul Pelosi, Nancy Pelosi's husband, the, the husband of, the, pu- the putative husband of, of the third most powerful person in America, supposedly. Uh, <clears throat> well, it was obviously a Republican, uh, attempted Republican assassination. Right. Wanted to kill That's what Hillary Nancy. Clinton told me. Right. Clear, um, clear as day. Yeah. yeah. Well, what else are the Republicans going to do in the run-up to elections? I mean, mm. they're going to attempt to assassinate the Speaker of the House because they can't win against her electorally. So they tried to kill her. She wasn't home. They settled for her husband just because, you know, out of spite. They're deplorables, you know. Mm. You can't expect them to think like you and I. Mm-hmm. No, seriously, the first reports, it's long since been dropped, but the first reports... Uh, broadcast internationally. So we hear, the first thing we hear about in, any incident involving a Pelosi over here in Europe is that a man had entered her, her home saying, where's Nancy, where's Nancy? Mm-hmm. That's what they do. They tack on something with the breaking news that they want you to to take home. If there's, if there's the only thing you hear about it, maybe in Europe or in Australia or wherever else in the world, this is all you remember from the Pelosi incident, is that somebody sh- who was in her home who shouldn't have been there mm-hmm. saying, where's Nancy, where's Nancy? That turns out to be utter horseshit. And they get the lion first, you know? That's, yeah. that, that's also a, a dead giveaway that is, you know, not what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, um, yeah, it looks like at this point it's now... Acknowledged that Paul Pelosi answered the door, mm-hmm. and there was no hint of emergency. The cops said as much themselves. Turned around to go back into the house, and then he was attacked. So th- he was attacked by this guy mm. in the presence of the police. But it was a serious yeah. hit. They yeah. really, he really did smack his skull. Yeah. It cr- yeah. made a hole in his head. Right. So you know we're not downplaying violence yeah. took place, but it's, it's strange, weird. Yeah. It may be something about just Paul Pelosi's kind of state of mind. You know, he's kind of like, I think he's 80 years old at least. Uh, but his own state of mind, I don't know what that guy was doing in his house for 30 minutes beforehand. How exactly. He eventually called the police. When the police arrived, he opens the door for the police. He doesn't actually run out the door towards the police. He actually backs away from the police towards the guy yeah. and tells him that, no, everything's <coughs> cool here. Uh, or the guy said everything's cool, basically. Uh, Pelosi supposedly referred to him on the phone call he made to the police as a, as a friend. Um, and then when he backed away towards the guy who supposedly was an intruder in his house and had been there for 30 minutes, the guy then, there was a kind of a struggle where both of them, the guy was holding a hammer, he grabs a hammer, Pelosi grabs a hammer, and then they kind of like struggle a little bit, and then the guy hits him on the head with a hammer. So um, very strange. But, uh, you know, I have a tweet. For the children. <clears throat> for the children. Yeah, where was Nancy anyway? Ash was off drinking gin somewhere. Uh, <laughs> um, th- this is a tweet for an exchange. For the children. For the children. For the children. Thanks, yeah. Nancy. Thanks. Um, this is an exchange between Elon Musk. It's, it, it, he's since deleted. That's why I have a kind of a poor screenshot. I hope people can read it. So Hillary tweets, The Republican Party and its mouthpieces now regularly spread hate and deranged conspiracy theories. It is shocking, but not surprising, that violence is the result. As citizens, we must hold them accountable for their words 
and the actions that follow. Hillary obviously is just implying the scenario, ludicrous scenario I just suggested there, that this man, uh, David DePap, was a Trump supporter, was a something of the right creature of the right who came in and attacked the House yeah. Speaker or originally sought to attack Nancy for political reasons. Um, horseshit. Uh, so Elon Musk <laughs> uh, weighed in and replied to her, there's a tiny possibility there might be more to the story than meets the eye. And now, it encloses an article below, or he links to an article below, but claiming it's an American, I don't know, some website, news website, uh, the awful truth, Paul Pelosi was drunk again, and uh, basically what it implies is that Paul Pelosi was drunk. Well, I mean, Nancy likes to drink as well, so I'm not surprised her husband likes to drink. Um, and I can imagine, you know, the two of them being half cut, basically, you know, because apparently he's her stylist as well. Paul Pelosi, I'm sure, maybe he he LARPs as her stylist, basically, but he, he basically, it's alleged that he kind of dresses her up a little bit and you know, does her, I don't know if he does her hair, but whatever, he checks her out before she's going out type thing. And I can imagine the two of them half drunk, you know, on a bottle of gin. And um, it just the scene is quite funny, actually, in my head. But anyway, uh, the claim in the article is that Paul Pelosi is gay. No. And How could you be he gay? He was at a gay bar. And you know, having like, a yeah. wife like Nancy, <laughs> yeah, she's so hot. And uh, a gay bar and picks up this guy, some uh, you know, sometime contact, confidant, uh, uh, you know, whatever friend of Paul Pelosi's. And the rest is history, basically. It, it's what you expect might happen with two drunk uh, guys who met in a gay bar go back to the house and uh, get in a fight over politics or something. And Paul Pelosi is a bit reticent about, you know, you know, um, making a big deal about it or and is, and is honest in a certain sense by calling the guy his friend. And when right. the police come, he doesn't actually <laughs> act as if he's under some kind of he, he's been kidnapped by some intruder. He actually goes back towards the guy that had been in, house for, in his house for 30 minutes. I mean, that kind of narrative seems to make a lot more sense than the official narrative of just this, you know, straight up home intrusion. An attack. It doesn't seem to make sense, but of course the media is absolutely silent on any alternative explanations for it because it's very sensitive because it's Nancy Pelosi and it's right before the midterms and oh my God. In May this year, Paul was... uh, It has echoes of Hunter Biden laptop story before uh, before before the last election. In May, um, Paul Pelosi was in a car crash. Yeah. Cops arrived, breathalyzed him. He was... Schnockered. Totally schnockered. Um, driving home long after midnight after a party. Like, right. which 82-year-old does that? Apparently yeah. in American politics, that's, that's kind of normal because yeah. they're just hey. brushing that aside. That story was by. buried until August, by uh-huh. the way. Then in his youth, Paul Pelosi actually killed his brother when the, the sports car they had, um, they were joyriding and flipped. Paul Pelosi is also into investing. He doesn't just do Nancy's hair. He invests her stocks for her. Mm. She, right, that's right. And the, the story is she gets the insider tips on mm-hmm. what's about to go down in Washington. Mm-hmm. And Paul bets accordingly on the, casino, on the casino markets. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway. Um, okay, so that's like a farcical story, right? It's before the midterms. Um, Clinton there you saw and CNN and all the rest of the talking heads tried to spin it as a Republican attack 
on, you know, like a January 6th style act of violence. Meanwhile, it emerges like just two days ago that an event that was buried for three weeks was that a Republican candidate's house uh, was shot up. Here's the U.S. News, um, November 3rd, but the event took place back in October. Shot fired at family home of North Carolina U.S. House candidate. Um, this is more disturbing because I think if you scroll down, I think it will describe that the recent shooting at the residence of this guy's uh, Pat Harrigan's, oh, at his parents. His parents' house. His young children were there as well. Um, it was just a shot fire from like a sniper rifle, and that was it. Never found anyone. No message was left. Um, yeah. That's it? That's it. <clears throat> shot fire to the window. Well, he's not important enough. He's only a candidate. <sighs> Republican candidate. But there's no, 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 no news about it for three weeks. Yeah. If he was a Democrat candidate, be different, yeah. Oh yeah. Um, in other news, Biden's call for regime change in Iran. Once again, his aides have to backpedal and say, "No, he didn't mean regime change. Mm-hmm. He just meant, you know, ha ha ha, laws." Um, he also said he was going to close down all the coal plants in America, and they had to backtrack on that one as well. Oh, was that to do with his cancer? No, he's just no. going to the green new de- the green uh, green economy. Oh, right. Close down the, all the coal plants across America. Yeah, he said that in the last election yeah. too, yeah. He said it recently. Um, and what else? Um, that's it for, the, for yeah. the freak show that is American politics. Um, no, that's all I've got. Maybe, maybe there'll be something worth talking about next week. Yeah. Now, can you? Can you? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do we want to go there? No. He went there. He went there. People can look it up. It's obviously, I don't know, it's not even worth talking about. The juice. The juice. It's the juice. Well, the only thing I would say is, no, not that one. Um, The only thing I would say on that topic is, um, is this. It's for the children. It's for the children. Oh, interesting. Can't read that one out. No, 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 no. Get us censored. But it's interesting that it's from the Times of Israel. Yeah, 2012, 10 years ago. They had no problem with it. So I don't know why anybody's a problem with Kanye saying it. Maybe it's because Kanye has a lot more, more of an audience. Probably that Times of Israel article didn't really... You know, not many people saw it. Yeah. But apparently someone at the Times of Israel does not have a problem with saying, and I'm quoting the headline here, Jews do control the media. So anti-Semitic. He actually, the guy, he actually says, yes, we do. And, uh, you know, we talk about it all the time. We're all happy about the fact that he's talking from the point of view of Jews in Israel or Jews in general. We're all happy about the fact that Jewish authors, Jewish politicians, Jewish directors. Oh, he's Jewish. Is he Jewish? That's great. Isn't he Jewish? When they hear about, you know, 
Jews will talk like that about and say, isn't it great? And uh, they, they really like the fact that, you know, Jews are, are any time it comes up that a Jew would be in a, in a prominent position or whatever. But then as soon as he says, the funny part is that when any anti-Semite or anti-Israel person starts to spout stuff like the Jews control the media, the Jews control Washington, suddenly we're up in arms. We create huge campaigns to take these people down. We do what we can to put them out of work. We publish articles. We create the entire organization that exists just to tell everyone that the Jews don't control nothing. No, we don't control the media. We don't have any more sway in DC than anyone else. No, no, we swear, just like everybody else. Does anybody else who's not a bigot see the irony of this? That's, the, that's me quoting from the article. So, um, Interesting. It sounds like the template for cancel culture. Yeah. Hmm. So anyway, yeah, that's all the news of Fit to, fit to Print, uh, I think. We're probably missing some stuff. We didn't touch on Ukraine, what's actually going on in Ukraine. Brief update on what's going on in Ukraine. Not much. The Mobniks, uh, mobilization, Russian mobilization forces, of which were 300,000, about 50,000, 60,000. Mobniks? Yeah, are, are, already, are already in uh, in in action. I mean, already available uh, to, to be to, to be in on the, on the front lines. But it looks like they're waiting until, you know, they're still doing that Kherson thing, trying to get people out of Kherson. Um but they seem to be making a lot of progress, and there's a lot of talk um, in the past few days about from the Western politicians and stuff talking about, you know, Zelensky needs to kind of be a bit Signal more peace. open yeah. to negotiation with Russia, et cetera, et cetera. But the cynical per- perspective on that is that that's Western governments, particularly the, U- particularly the US and the Brits, for example, telling Zelensky to put on the appearance of being open to negotiations so that people in Western countries don't think of you as this little hardline nut job who, like, you know, is taking all our money and won't, you know, just thinks he's entitled to whatever we, whatever he wants, basically. Yeah, it was for that domestic purposes. He has to present a more conciliatory and open-minded peacemaker uh, uh, image yeah. rather than the one that he's been, been presenting so far. So they're just telling him, talk about being open to negotiations with the Russia, but it's not happening. At like, least we're going try ahead. to sound like a normal person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Try to sound like a normal person, but we're going to carry on, you know. But yeah, the Russians waiting, in theory, waiting for uh, harder ground, winter to set in properly, leaves to fall off the trees, more visibility, and to continue on. I mean, the general synopsis, the general theories behind what the next the next stage is the in the south there, Kherson, and then with a view to carrying on over to Odessa. Of course, there's a lot of water going to the Brits between now and then. The Brits supposedly are putting together a quote-unquote oh. terrorist army to That's launch attacks against Crimea. So there's all sorts of hybrid, low-intensity uh, guerrilla warfare going on or being planned by Western, Western governments, basically, at this stage. They're kind of like yeah. planning to add in a bigger element of guerrilla-type, terrorist-type um, attacks against Russian interests, particularly in Crimea, uh, because that's that's how things progress, right? Yeah. After a certain period of time, if the Ukrainian army starts to really, like, you know, gets past a certain point of, they've lost a certain amount of uh, too much, let's say, uh, uh, military hardware and personnel, there's a certain percentage. Once it goes past that, it's like, okay, we're really on the back foot here. We need to do something else. So before we get to that point, we need to add a new element in that will keep the Russians distracted, you know. So it's a long haul, yeah. The Russians hauled off the British ambassador this right. week, um, supposedly to prevent evidentiary materials showing r- British involvement in Nord Stream and the Kerch terror attack. Mm-hmm. So that's, and then they said they would follow up, 
but it didn't say when. We're kind of waiting on it and publish that material. Mm. Do you think that will have any effect? I don't know if they will publish it or what material they why, have. Why don't they do it? It's not like the Brits have in their stack of cards evidence of Russians doing the same. Mm-hmm. What they've done over the last 20 years is invent evidence of mm-hmm. Russian crimes uh, hope, and hope it sticks. And it does to some extent. Uh, it used to anyway. Yeah. Um, why hold back? Is it the rules of spy versus spy? Like, don't just say you have it and then get the ambassador in and show him, publish it, you know? Mm-hmm. But obviously they have their reasons for holding. Yeah. Maybe they're hoping it is leveraged to get the Brits to rein in the yeah, terror plans well. for Crimea. That's the way Russia operates, basically, where they do it behind the scenes and try and strike a deal behind the scenes because at the end of the day, public opinion isn't really where it's at, you know? Uh, it doesn't really matter to Russia as much as it matters to the West, you know? They want to... Uh, Influence where they can still influence Western politicians to be uh, to see a bit more sense, you know, and they'll use whatever they can. That, that's the, that's their primary objective. Let's say it's not about you know busting it wide open and, and dumping it on the public, and yeah. you know, I mean, that's that's the Western tactics basically. They don't they don't follow Western tactics, you know. Um, so, and anyway, the type of information, the type of evidence they have may not actually be evidence that would convince anybody and all they'd get if they were to release it publicly. They'll get just a bunch of uh, mealy mouth nitpicking and, and, and dismissal of it by Western media. You know what I mean? That would have no effect. The only, the, only, the only effect you'd hope to have by publishing it publicly, by, by presenting it publicly, would be um, on the population. But given that the population is enthralled to Western media and Western governments, um, what's the point? They're just going to distort it and twist it and tell, you know, Western population, populations will believe whatever their governments and the Western media says. If the Western media says Russia's evidence for U, uh, UK involvement in, in Nord Stream 2 and Kirsch is fake. false, they'll believe that. So what did Russia get out of doing that? They'd rather use it um, in some way, if they can, privately. Anyway, are we done? Yeah, um, we're done. It just the one little datum emerged about the Nord Stream attack. Mm. Um, the blast was so intense that in water, at depth, debris was scattered in a 250-meter radius. Mm. What the hell did they use? Like A big old bomb. A big one. <clears throat> it's a UAV. Presumably it's a submersible. It's a, it's a sub, but it's like loaded with something. Yeah, a thermobaric underwater. Well, something with a blast that can blast in a in a quarter kilometer radius. I mean, that's enormous. Anyway, that was the yeah. who said that Nord Stream AG. So that's not just not just a Russian company. That's that's a consortium of mm-hmm. five European companies. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it's crickets. Like Putin says, it's unbelievable the times we live in. You know, you can do that and vaguely insinuate Russia did it and then just carry on. Yeah. Crazy world we live in. Yep. Okay. Uh, we'll leave it there for this week, folks. Thanks for watching, listening, whatever you're doing. Um, we'll be back next week on our show. Don't forget to smash all the buttons and like, and thanks for commenting as well. Apparently commenting is awesome, so uh, keep commenting. And um, yeah, we'll be back next week on our show. Until then, have a good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for watching. Bye, all. See ya. Can't stop the signal now.